Hello and welcome to Cinephils Take 21. Uh, this week, uh, Rob and I are going to discuss two films by Sidney Lumet. Um, I think that's the proper pronunciation, even though it probably should be Lumet. Um, and uh, the two films are uh, 12 Angry Men and Serpico. So um, we got there. Um, how do we get there? Oh, right. Because, uh, because of uh, the Kurosawa film we saw before, um, uh, uh, um, High and Low. Um, and so I thought these might be an interesting um, counterpoint um, because uh, there were there are features of each that I think both of these Sidney Lumet films capture. So welcome back, Rob. I know we're in a sort of a, a lazy summer schedule. You're doing a lot of biking and I'm playing a lot with my kids who are home on vacation. So um, thanks for bearing with us listeners and Rob, thanks for accommodating yeah. our schedules. Well, it's exactly how summer should be. Summer is yeah. about doing things. Uh, yeah. So uh, I refuse to be beholden to a rigorous schedule during the summer. So thank you, David. Uh, not at all. Not at all. Well, I mean, as academics, we have, you know, these short months to get our act together again uh, before Everything starts up yeah. again. So. <laughs> Before shit hits the fan again, yes. <laughs> All right. Uh, yeah, I like I like these movies a lot. Uh, I like I haven't I had never seen Serpico, and okay. I hadn't seen uh, Twelve Angry Men for quite some time. So much so that I forgot uh, most of it. Like I remembered the general uh, plot, uh, which is guys de deliberating but i didn't remember any of the finer points of it so it was a real real treat to see serpico for the first time and uh re-watch uh 12 angry men uh which one would you like to talk about first david well let, let's start chronologically so 12 angry men is uh it's um court your courtroom um drama film but it's not really even a courtroom drama because we're never in the courtroom uh, it's more, you know, we talked when we were doing high and low about this notion of a bottle episode. So, and that's a, yeah. that's a challenge for a director. Um, and one that Lumet really pulls off, I think, expertly in a number of ways. I thought we could talk about some of that and, and then a bit about the, the storyline, which, um, you know, I thought was kind of topical. And I think, so for a 1957 film, right, uh, in the, in the heat of McCarthyism, um, you know, in uh, in the U.S., um, which is which is impacting Hollywood and and Lumets and others, um, friends and um, uh, coworkers, I thought it was uh, really kind of interesting to see how he wove that story together out of out of these deliberations because you know we enter not knowing anything about the case, right? And we only learn it through the jurors. Right. Uh, yeah. And uh, it seems uh, from just uh, the basis of 12 Angry Men that uh, the U.S. was a lot more progressive in 1957 than in uh, 2023. Um, yeah, 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 like, yeah, like there, there was only like one explicit racist um, in that jury room. Uh, right. Which was I and. People listened to reason uh, for the most part, uh, which I thought was uh, really interesting. Um, I wish that 
more of that was seen because uh, that was like the thing that was striking me uh, about this movie is, you know, given that there are going to be some really high profile court cases uh, coming in the U.S. in uh, the next year or so. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like um, I wonder if the jurors in those rooms will be uh, persuadable by reason or whether they're going to be completely intransigent, Uh, you know, uh, whereas in this in 12 Angry Men, they were uh, in the end. Uh, they could be persuaded by reason, which I thought was really uh, just it will be an interesting uh, socio or uh, historical study, I think, yeah. <laughs> at some point. Uh, things I liked about uh, it. Yeah, because it was like like a bottle uh, episode or a bottle film. Uh, yeah, like keeping the viewer's attention is so so hard because the setting essentially doesn't change uh you don't have a lot of room for the camera to do a lot of uh funky stuff like that basically came into the four well i guess shortly after this with the french new wave uh is where the camera really got free Mm -hmm. uh you know and so there but there just wasn't room to do to, there wasn't room to set up a dolly you know um given what they had uh the camera for the most part had to be put on bait essentially a tripod mm -hmm. and uh what you're doing is you're doing through uh through cuts and uh focus techniques uh, and framings and i thought that was uh that was how they kept the drama there was the one moment uh where the rainstorm started uh which was a uh, i think a pretty definitive uh break or uh movement in in the film like okay uh division between acts i guess would be the correct way Mm -hmm. to frame it uh so i thought that was an interesting thing like that was the only real moment where you're actually paying attention to the viewer as the viewer you're paying attention to something outside of the room uh something yeah. external to the room and i thought that was an interesting formalistic device uh but besides that just what is going on like we have uh the close-ups on the faces uh, which is uh, sort of uh, a precursor to Sergio Leone, what Sergio Leone is doing in his Westerns. Sure. Uh, and I thought that was uh, neat. But just what the camera is doing here and what Lumet is doing here to uh, convey the tension strictly through the camera. Uh, because the dialogue, you know, the dialogue was, I found it fascinating. I found the arguments fascinating uh, and the lack thereof and the appeals to emotion. I found that all fascinating, but that might just be because of the job we do. Uh, like I'm wondering if the average, if the, if somebody who is not teaching logic for a living would be so interested in that and uh you know they might they might uh find their attention 
going elsewhere. And then it's like, it, it's all on the camera here than to yeah. keep the viewer engaged. And uh, I thought that was really extraordinary. And the raw acting. Like, uh, it's amazing that these 12 angry men didn't have much to do uh, in, this, in, in this room. Like, it was all in line delivery. Like, there was... And then the one guy, uh, who was it? Was it Henry Fonda, who... Who actually got to pace around the room uh he's, to count he's off the most this. active, right? He moves around yeah. quite a bit. And he commands. I mean, Henry yeah. Fonda is a tall guy, yeah. you know, and he commands the room um and with his sort of um austere gentility too. As mm-hmm. and there's there's a lot of ways that the drama is maintained. Um as you say in the acting, in the, in his pacing, um, in the tension you see in the eyes of the actors, especially um, mm-hmm. in, the, in the sweltering heat, right? The, the, the sweat mm-hmm. that's quite visible, um, uh, dripping down their faces and through their shirts. All of that, you know, creates a sense of tension that I, I think is palpable and interesting and really carries the film. Um, there's a number of, you know, there's a number of ways that he does that. But yeah, the framing techniques. Um, the angle of the film, our angle of the camera up, you know, uh, yeah. uh, a lot of the time angled up for Henry Fonda and down towards those who are, you know, coming at him in various ways. Um, yeah, well, I, I noticed that switched uh, yeah. depending on the exact moment of the con- the argument, uh, like the bluster, the really blustery guy who... Uh, had the problem with his son. I forget uh Lee Co- Lee J. Call. Oh, right. Like yeah. he yeah, he was portrayed as physically intimidating, which a low camera angle will uh is necessarily going to uh give you. Uh like if when the camera's down low, everybody and looking up at a person, that character is going to be physically intimidating. I noticed Lee J. Cobb uh, was presented in that way through the movie then right. as it progressed or as the movie went on the camera angle shifted and as he became more isolated from his peers uh until uh then it was at like a super high camera angle and uh right. he was he was diminished by the camera right. and uh the same thing with um Ed Begley Sr. Um, like it yeah. was interesting how uh the camera switched on him, uh, where it did remain the same. Well, and then the inverse of it with uh, the old the old Matt, uh who was that that wasn't Plugman. Uh, um. Yeah, I think yeah. he's a Sweeney's character, Jern. Yeah, Nines. Sweeney. Yeah, the the elderly gentleman. Uh, yeah, yeah, it also uh, he was started off being very diminished, and then uh, the camera was basically he was never presented as a towering figure, but it was a straight on shot uh, when he is actually like stating uh, his piece, which I thought was interesting. Yeah, but yeah, that it, was. It's fascinating because the, the camera captures these moments of each of them either achieving some breakthrough 
or attaining a voice that has been somehow, um, you know, quashed uh, that, you know, we really find that the actors uh, who are all, you know, quite an extraordinary, I think, in this in this film, um, manage to convey the power of an individual as a juror. And when I was a, a law student, I took a trial technique course, um, my favorite course in law school with a, a really outstanding trial attorney um, named Rose. Um, and his, um, his, uh, he had, he told us we had to watch this film, this and judgment in Nuremberg. He said, you need to watch these films and you need to watch them over and over again. If you're going to be trial lawyers, he said, um, for, for different reasons, but the, this one, because the jury is a really fascinating institution you know, <laughs> dating back to medieval times um, when courts in England assembled, you know, juries of uh, property holders in, in um, who would, the Lord would uh, serve as the, the judge and the jury would, uh, you know, come to a decision. They'd listen to the case and come to a decision. And so it's a fascinating institution because the Lord couldn't really overcome the judgment of those of those jurors, and this is a uh, this really brings home the power of that jury, but it also illustra illustrates a lot of the the problems uh, as well at the time. So, you know, fifties and sixties America was, you know, it, it isn't twelve angry people, twelve angry jurors, it's twelve angry men uh, who all happen to be white, um, and you know, making this judgment on, a, on somebody who's clearly a minority. Right. Uh, there there was that. And uh, yeah, not everybody in that uh, jury room was uh, had the same authority. Uh, right. Like, you know, uh, like Jack, Jack Klug's, Klugman's character, who uh, was, well, by his own admission from the slum, like he was berated through a good portion of that uh, deliberation. Like there was socio, the socioeconomic disparities in real life or in life were reflected or trend, uh, yeah, were reflected in the jury room, were illustrated in the jury room and also well, obtained in the jury room. Um, like uh, the stockbroker who I, who I gather was, probably the wealthiest person in the room he was treated with an air of authority a profound authority throughout yeah. most of uh the film and uh the deliberation and which is just i suppose uh what does this indicate i i'm the, the just echoing your point although the jury is it's a it's a very interesting institution, but it is also uh, quite flawed, uh, and especially in 1957, uh, apparently. And there's really yeah. nothing overseeing. So these the, the yeah. jury foreman is not an expert on anything. Right. He's just elected or appointed, I guess, elected to be the foreman of the jury um, and has to somehow, in this closed room, they have to come to a a judgment that will matter, right, to this kid. He could, the kid could, I, I don't know, could could the kid get the chair? 
Yes, was it was a capital case. Yeah, it was. Right. A, so, yeah, yeah, he so was. They, was they, and then, you know, and all of them are so blasé about it, right? So they go in and and um, they're all ready to put him in the chair, which is remarkable and striking because. And we think, okay, we don't know anything about this case, but everybody seems quite certain. And all but Henry Fonda, and Henry Fonda's character isn't sure one way or another. He could go either way. He just wants to hear the arguments. Yeah, he starts so, off uh, saying, yeah, we, we're going to put him to death. Uh, we should at least talk about it for an hour. Yeah. You know, like, uh, and had he not done that, the, the kid would be dead. Yeah. Yeah. Fascinating. Uh, dynamics that you know a lot of people who never serve on juries or sit in courtrooms really don't you know grasp the full weight of right um what was interesting i suppose is what was not talked about but what i thought would have been talked about uh was the merits of capital punishment uh i thought that was a clear the movie from the description was clearly going uh, that clearly would have been on the table, but that argument never came up in this movie at all. Like, uh, which I thought was reflective, uh, well, perhaps reflective of uh, 1957 America or perhaps reflective of present day America as well. I'm not sure. Uh, it was a brief period of time from the early seventies to, um, early 2000s, I think, or late 1990s, when uh, capital punishment was banned pretty much in the U.S. But uh, yeah, at the time, and for most of the Amer history of the, Amer of, of the United States, you know, capital punishment has been legal and pretty, you know, uh, broadly available uh, across the states. Yeah, like... So it's, well, so it's just like taken for granted here. Right. I, I think it was uh, struck down in Canada in the late 60s or uh, very early 70s. And uh, I think the UK was around the same period. But yeah, like it. <laughs> yeah, it, it was just interesting that this was not on the map as something to debate uh, when it clearly could have been. Um, um, like the only thing is, yeah. Though the Henry Fonda's big claim was, well, we should, uh, we're going to sentence him to death. We should at least talk about it for an hour. Not, um, is there the collective groans too of all yeah. the jury members who just want to get out of there, right? They're, yeah. they're not getting paid for this. They're getting what, a, a buck a day or something like that, seven bucks a day. Yeah. Um, and they just want to go home. Like the um, one of the jurors, he's got a game he's got to get to. Um, or a Yankees, a Yankees game, right? Yeah. Um, and everybody else just wants to go home. Even the, even, you know, based on that first vote, people we later realize are uh, skeptical, right? They're not really committed to justice. They're more interested in their own lives, right? And And, you know, just getting this over with. Right. Yeah, I thought that was uh, I thought that was really interesting. Um, I also thought like just the subtle who was the, the stock, not the stockbroker, the ad man. Um, oh, yeah. uh, 
And I forget the actor. Yeah, uh, Robert Weber. Yeah. Right. Yeah, juror number right? Yeah, juror 12. I loved how when he was present from his presentation in initially in the jury room, he is present, he's wearing a suit. Uh so one thinks he's sort of respectable and sort of knows knows a thing or two about a thing or two, but as the deliberations portray or carry on, you find out that he is literally an empty suit, that he has nothing of substance to say at any point. He has he has a few witticisms, and that is it. And I thought that was rather a stunning indictment of what was going on in New York in 1957, because like this is the emergence of the Madison Avenue ad ad men, the mad men uh, culture. Uh, This is its inception. And I thought so early in the game, here is Lumet saying, look at these guys are just a bunch of empty suits. They're right. they're they're not great writers. They're not great creators. They are just empty suits who have the odd witticism. <laughs> and uh, I thought that was a really a, a very astute foreshadowing of a, of a, how that culture would eventually or that subculture would eventually emerge, and perhaps yeah. even perhaps. Well, even capitalism. Uh, mind you, that might be going a bit far. But certainly, yeah, adver- advertising. Uh, I thought that was uh, interesting. I thought another thing interesting about uh, the characters, how uh, George uh, Vostovic, uh, the European watchmaker, he's the one who most uh, stridently or most... Uh, forcefully argues for the merits of American democracy. That's right. Yeah. And, and, you know, there's a story that um, uh, Supreme Court Justice uh, Sotomayor was moved by his speech in that. Um, She told this to uh, um, at a law school commencement that 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 helped to convince her to go to law school (laughs) was this speech that he gives that really is you know it shows him to be most aware of his civic duty of his role as a citizen you know uh, more so than than any of the other you know sort of prejudiced uh uh anti-immigrant folks who have who've been just sitting there and eager to go home right yeah like here it was the immigrant making the strongest case for uh, American civics, civic duty that was heard in that jury room. And I thought that was incredible. Yeah. Uh, and not, obviously not by accident. Um, you don't do something like that by accident. Uh, right. You know, and I thought that was uh, really interesting. Uh, yeah. 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 He, I think, I mean, it's, there's some preachiness to this that um, in our, I suppose in our modern cinema might be viewed cynically. Um, but I think it's as relevant today uh, as ever. And as you mentioned, there, there, our justice system is going to be 
overwhelmed soon with some really important cases. Um, the 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 fact that these people are shown to be just regular people, right? Um, who are not that interested, um, but somehow pressed with this duty um, is, uh, I think, you know, a, a sort of a, a call to arms, a, 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 a notice, you know, about the role of the individual in this process. Um, and, and, you know, that it should be taken with a little more seriousness than any of these jurors were originally um, giving it. And so I thought, you know, I know Henry Fonda helped produce this um, and uh, with the writer, um, I forget the name. Anyway, um, it was supposed to be a teleplay at first, and then it was uh, um, turned into this movie. And Lumet was brought in to direct it because of his his uh, very um, workmanlike attitude toward directing. Uh, and they shot it in three weeks, uh, which is a you know a remarkable schedule. But again, it's a you know not much in the way of set changes or even <laughs> wardrobe changes. Um, just um, or I thought uh, an astounding achievement and one that was recognized for being so at the time with numerous Academy Award nominations. Uh, quick question. Well, oh, um, it was Reginald Rose who was uh, the screenwriter for this. Uh, I just looked that up. I didn't know that. Um, now, but I have a question for you, David. Um, do you think that such a situation as 12 Angry Men could obtain in our pro in a, a society which many have characterized as post-truth, or we might just as well say post-Trumpian society? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. Um, so one of the interesting things about this is that so a lawyer looks at a film like this and and says that this is exactly what it means to be post-truth. The, the evidence was presented and, it, and the evidence the defense managed to get out was insufficient. It's clear the defense lawyer did a poor job in this trial. The jurors went beyond, beyond their roles, right? The lawyer didn't make many of the arguments that they ended up making themselves as jurors. I think it's very optimistic to think that jurors would do what happened. Yeah. Okay. Uh, let me uh, clarify uh, post-truth. I, yeah, I, I agree with you. But what I was thinking about, it's like, at least in that jury room, people could still listen to reason and respect the process of reason. Uh, and respect the application of reason, they could identify a logical fallacy. All right. So this is an interesting question about the, um, yeah, how the way that the jury deals with facts in the trial in 12 Angry Men um, might relate to what, you know, what you call, um, uh, you know, post-truth world. Um, and, and this is actually, this gives me an opportunity to sort of um, pontificate about something interesting about <clears throat> legal epistemology in general and the nature of a jury in a trial. So this is, uh, there, yeah, I, I think you've, you've heard of something called jury nullification, uh, which is where basically a jury can do whatever it wants. And this is more or less the case. So uh, 
the the ultimate trier of fact in any trial is not the judge, um, but the jury. And that means that whatever it is the jury accepts as true is true. Um, and in the movie, this is sort of illustrated um, rather graphically by the fact that they filled in a lot of gaps. You know, um, they um, they didn't uh, rely upon only what the attorney for the defendant um, uh, got out of the testimony um, or the way that that attorney had spun that testimony or uh, described it rather they filled in a bunch of gaps. So they were, they were doing something that no attorney in their right mind wants them to do, but which is perfectly within um, their, you know, the, their authority to do. Um, and that, that, that's fascinating because um, this notion that the facts of a legal case are whatever the jurors of fact decide they are has some interesting philosophical implications, of course. And, um, you know, we don't, it doesn't make sense for us. So uh, you, you were, I suppose, even in Canada following the OJ trial, right? Yeah. Yeah. I followed it, uh, basically, uh, well, I followed the car chase slowly, uh, (laughs) and then the rest of it, that was like, if it, if the glove doesn't fit, then you must acquit. It wasn't that. Yeah. 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 And, uh-huh. and, you know, that's exactly what the jury decided. Um, and yet, you know, pretty much anyone watching the evidence come in in that trial uh, felt that that was just sort of a, you know, a, a tagline and not necessarily a, a way to understand the actual facts. Um, so, yeah, that the facts of that case and the facts, the legal facts of that case are that uh, OJ did not kill his wife, um, regardless of whatever the facts of the world are. And that, and in that case, um, you know, um, the jury was doing exactly what, um, more or less the, the jury, uh, is entitled to do to, to, to describe exactly what occurred legally. Um, and that becomes the truth. That is fascinating. Uh, so I have two questions here uh one uh why do they call it jury nullification what is exactly being nullified by the jury why where did that term come from uh is my first question and then the second one which is probably related um is the you said the truth the jury decides what truth is accepted now um accepted not accepted accepted uh it does a jur- does the truth pre-exist the jury's determinations or does the jury actually um is the jury's deliberation the process of creating the truth yeah that's a fascinating question so first on the question of why jury nullification it means that you know, there's a bunch of safeguards in the legal process by which lawyers and judges attempt to marshal the evidence that comes into the case to the jury in such a way that they are bound in some way. Mm-hmm. So there's something called the jury instructions, and it says, you know, if you find X, then Y, 
um, if you find Y, then Z, um, and therefore, you know, this would constitute the crime of X. Uh, no, not sorry, Z, sorry. So, um, or actually, I guess I'd go to Alpha. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, in any case, um, that the jury doesn't have to abide by any of that crap. You know, they're given these sheets, and most of them are very, um, um, you know, obedient. <laughs> and I try to do all this properly. But, you know, they can say unicorns exist, and that would be the case. That is jury nullification. Um, wow. You know, regardless of what um, we heard in court, we find X. That's essentially what they can do. And they're, they're, they, they have this tremendous power to do that. Now, of course, you're raising an interesting question. You know, in the case of a murder, right, somebody killed someone else. Um, and the question is whether or not they had some sort of excuse. Um, and I, I suppose, you know, there have been murders, lots of murders, most murders probably in history were never prosecuted. And yet there are facts about them. We don't call them murders because that's a legal term of art. They were killings. Uh, and then, you know, in the legal process, determining whether it amounts to this social object, right, of a murder is a process that is undertaken in a legal system. Does that make sense? And then, and therefore the construction of that um, fact, right, the fact of a murder, that legal fact is separate and apart from the social, from the, I suppose, the brute facts of the actual killing and the social construction of that killing. Wow, that, that is truly fascinating. So the truth is, uh, the truth determined by the jury is not necessarily reflective of any reality external to uh, the world of the jury room. Uh, it doesn't need to be, right. Yeah, but yet it is immediately, but it is determinative of that world uh, after the fact. Uh, because, like when the jury makes its de decision about what the truth of a particular case is, that truth obtains in the world, in the real world, and uh, people's lives are determined by that. You go to jail or you don't, uh, for example. <laughs> yeah, that, that's really fascinating. Uh, yeah, it's a, and then I suppose there are, if you follow that, there are different don't uh, it's even wrong to talk about the truth. There are uh, multiple senses of the truth uh, or truth. There are multiple truths going on and uh, each have a different uh, domain at which they operate in and mm -hmm. and supervenience. Yeah, that, that, that's super cool. Also, it super is cool. Yeah. And I think, you know, as I mentioned, my, Law school, my law school trial technique prof made us watch this film um, for that very reason, right? So that if you think that the pursuit of justice uh, is bound by the facts of the real world, right? Outside of the legal system, then you're not going to be an effective lawyer. Yeah. You need to, you need to, um, translate those facts into this legal story, essentially this, this narrative that becomes the legal truth. And, and that, so I, you know, my law school um, trial technique prof was a brilliant trial lawyer 
And he just understood this so um, expertly and conveyed it to us that, you know, all of his students went on to become, um, you know, effective um, trial lawyers, um, because this is a, this is really essential. And we can see right playing out now in um, the narratives surrounding various interesting legal things going on in the world right now. You, this is uh, the summer of 20, 2023. Um, we're, we're seeing lawyers on, on various sides weave those narratives in ways that are going to be essential to what happens in terms of justice. Yeah. And like, so not only doesn't, isn't the truth necessarily something that is in the empirical world, the life world, it's uh, in a subset of that, the jury room. Uh, right. It's also not in some platonic or yeah, some platonic realm of where uh, Plato thought like Plato thought justice was ultimately a form. Uh, right. Yeah. So. Oh, yeah. That's an excellent point. Yeah. No, justice is is clearly empirical. So Aristotle's on the side of the. Yeah. The lawyer there. Yeah. That, that. Yeah. That's super awesome. You should teach more philosophy classes, David. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and actually, I've, I've always wanted to uh, write more on this notion of legal epistemology because I don't see a lot of a lot of work of addressing that sort of, you know, the, the social construction of legal facts. Um, so that's something I'll work on. Yeah. It's, it's super awesome from a theoretical standpoint, but also super terrifying when you, uh, recognize how this applies to the real world, um, to our lived experience, uh, you know, that just justice is essentially created by 12 angry men. Uh, yes, exactly. So, I mean, know. I guess we can be a little thankful that the the makeup of those juries has changed quite a bit thanks to various processes and, you know, politics, um, yeah. but still heavily dependent upon a lot of sort of geographical and um, other sort of um, accidental considerations. Right. Contingencies. All right. Uh, yeah, well, that was... But given that we're talking about justice, let's move on to Serpico, eh? Yeah, so this is, um, I guess you hadn't seen it before? No, uh, this was my, uh, first, I, I heard of it, uh, obviously, and like, I knew that there was a book out about this, but uh, I knew the vague contours of the case, but, or the, the story, not the case. Um, actually seeing the movie was uh, a revelation. It was great. Um it really showed a few things to me. Um, one, the like 1970s America real uh, really was like a case of uh, late stage capitalism, despair. It was a hellscape. And that's like the locations actually used in this movie were just it's like New York was not looking great. Uh, no, it yeah, um, I remember as a kid, you know, my parents, my dad used to teach media studies. Mm -hmm. And he would take his um, in college, a uh, community college in Western New York, and we'd take a bus trip every year with him. He would take us, and I, you know, I, I, my mom and I went because we wanted to go to New York City. Um, so we would go to New York City in the mid seventies, right around the time of this film. <laughs> and uh, yeah, this is a pretty accurate and gritty portrayal, um, and. Revealing too of the the um, 
you know, the law enforcement context too, which of course has a fair amount of bearing on that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. How, how the cops were showing, like this was really like, I remember all the TV shows from the eighties and a lot of, uh, well, I don't remember all of them. I remember many of the TV shows from the eighties and, and they the movies and the cops were really presented in a right, um, uh, a right-wing friendly manner. Uh, the cops were the good guys. Uh, William Shatner was a cop and TJ Hooker. And, you know, it was it was great. Um, these guys were solving all the cases, doing all the right things, upholding uh, the truth of, or defending the truth of the common man and all this great stuff. This movie, and of course, with uh, Black Lives Matter, and all of these super important social changes that have occurred, we're starting to realize that the cops in 2023 uh, and the 2020s are not necessarily the good guys and not really on your side. Um, and they should be treated warily with a fair degree of uh, wariness. And um, here in Serpico, we have... Uh, a destabilization of that uh, notion in advance of the 1980s, like, and which I find like here, the cops are showing, yeah, they're grifters. Uh, they're, they're basically operating in the same way as the mafia, except they have uh, shields. Uh, they have the police badges. And I thought that that was really a fascinating uh, social comp or, moment in society uh and that's one of the reasons i really love this movie is because it's showing in the 1970s uh 1973 uh where the cops aren't great and now here we are in 2023 and it's like that has circled around again so i thought this was a really strong point of the movie uh and made yeah. it yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, um, there, there was a, a, a zeitgeist developing at that time in which a lot of the sort of preconceptions about who the good guys are start to emerge in film um, and get challenged. So um, we see at about the same. So Serpico, I think leads the way on this. There's a couple other films that, um, you know, I, one was the parallax view, mm -hmm. um, and there it's the, you know, politicians who are corrupt and, you know, engaged in some sort of conspiracy. Sort of this paranoid, dark conspiratorial view of the establishment is now making its way to screen with some regularity. Um, other ones, uh, you, you mentioned a couple, um, yeah, par uh, the parallax view, three days of the condor. Yeah, uh, of course, all the president's men. Uh, <laughs> yeah, right. So all of this right happens at about the same time as Watergate is starting to be uncovered, and yeah. so it's you know it it seems to be consistent with you know the sort of um, uh, growing view that you know we can't really trust the authorities. Um, I think Kubrick um, presages this with satire in in um, Doctor Strangelove, actually, 
Absolutely. Um, and well, also uh, clockwork. Uh, he, yes. uh, yeah, he really uh, touches on that. And then uh, in all of Kubrick's movies, basically. Uh, in- yeah, he's, uh, he's deeply suspicious of authorities in general. Yeah. So we, that, that sort of the strain that, you know, Paths of Glory and others had going, um, I think opened doors for this sort of filmmaking, which is quite gritty um rather dour right yes um and uh um uh, even though there seems to be justice at the end that's not exactly the case right yeah like uh yeah it's a very it is a very sort of tepid just sense of justice uh that uh came out of like the end result of this uh if if any like i'm like the hero, the protagonist, and we can talk about um, that in a moment, uh, ends up in exile, essentially, after the, at the end of this movie. Like, you know, and uh, in any in any story where the protagonist ends up in exile, um, you might say that uh, the he- that the protagonist's cause was not uh, fully realized. <laughs> um, yeah, so there's that now. The character of uh, Serpico, I had some issues with him, too. Uh, I thought he was a bit too much of a martyr. I thought yeah. I thought he was too self-righteous. Like, it didn't really make sense to me why this guy was taking such was having having such moral umbrage uh, against uh taken a few dollars which he didn't even have to take like you know there was that whole segment in the movie where it's like okay well we're going to give you the money and i'll hold on to it and you never have to see it and you don't have to do anything you know and he was still having issues with that and uh, it struck me like just why why like not that i'm in favor of uh cops taking grift but i thought uh it was disproportionate his moral outrage at this um was seemed odd and uh he really wanted to seem to be a self uh he serpico really wanted to appear to be morally righteous uh no matter what. And yeah. I think that's a character flaw. Like, you know, he wanted to be the Messiah. And uh, that was odd to me. Yeah. And I think the filmmaker bent over backwards to make it the case. Right. So in the movie. Um, and I agree with you the the idea that cops are taking payoffs doesn't seem particularly um, appalling to us. It shouldn't have been much of a surprise this is this has gone on as long as there have been cops um and now of course in light of um um black lives matter and the you know the whole um sort of opening the door into prosecuting cops for doing really bad things um you know it seems almost trivial right um the cops were getting payoffs from merchants um and it, it didn't and i don't think they were getting payoffs from uh, n- n- um drug dealers were they 
I think they were, but they weren't. Okay. The the Vice Squad clearly was like they were saying how when Serpico got transferred to the oh, Vice right. Squad, right, right, um, yeah, they were making a ton. Yeah, but again, like given what I imagine the drug trade in the 1970s in Manhattan to be, um, this seems like okay, rather small fry. And like you know, like to be clear, what drugs were they getting payoffs? the cops getting payoffs to allow on the streets. It was pot. It was pot. Well, no, it was a big heroin trade. Didn't you see yeah, the French no. connection? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Pot and heroin to some people. But, yeah. al- but also, thank you for bringing up the French connection. Like that also, what else was going on? Like, remember that scene in um, the French connection where Gene Hackman's character basically walks into the bar and, and beats the crap out of a... Uh, yeah racialized guy uh right. for no reason whatsoever um you know and like that also was obtaining in this world and like that would have been something for serpico to have issues with uh, right you know <laughs> like but instead he's like no you're you're holding some amount of money for me that i never have to access um yeah. but by that's where I'm going to make my stand. And it was like, oh, come on. Uh, yeah, and, and so, the, yeah, the real injustice, right, is that the the cops are taking the payoffs from the from the, you know, the big shots. Right. Yeah. And still arresting the street dealers. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And throwing them in jail for a few days here and then. Um, and, and as well as users. So that seems to me you're right. The, this whole idea um, in in looking back, right uh, on the the what the real corruption is, makes it seem like Serpico uh, was a bit of a whiny bitch, you know. Uh, and I think you're right. Yeah, so he comes across as this sort of martyr for this. Um, you know, there was corruption inside the um, the police, and that was, you know, that should have been rooted out. But there's a lot more that's going on that needs addressing. Yeah, uh, yeah, and it's it's a it's a not the super strongest analogy, but like this corruption wasn't just a New York thing; it was an everywhere thing. I gather everywhere in North America in the seventies, yeah. and like you know, nineteen seventy eight, uh, Philadelphia. There's the that uh, Frank Rizzo, uh, who was a police commissioner, who basically the move group was just sitting there um, trying to do some Afro uh, primitivism thing, but really doing no harm. They were composting materials in their backyard in 1978. And uh, the, the police used um, Frank Rizzo sent in 500 uh, cops to coordinate to first cordon off the whole block in Philadelphia to starve them out. And then mm. when that wasn't working, they stormed the place to arrest uh, the move nine. And like, that was 1978. So like you have cops, uh, they firebombed the building and yeah, well that was 85, but yeah, like, oh, okay. yeah, like, but in the seventies, like you have cops cordoning off whole blocks to starve out black people. Um, <laughs> You know, and then sending in a literal army of cops 
to get them out. And um, it was in 78 where uh, Delbert Africa, that was like the first Rodney King video in the history of of, uh, those sorts of videos. Delbert Africa was beaten, uh, came out of the house and was beaten to to basically, well, almost death, like they used, and this was all caught on video. And so this is a sort of reality. Yeah. And Serpico's like, oh, you, you're holding a hundred bucks for me. That's what I'm having <laughs> my issue with. <laughs> you know, and it's like, uh, so there's that. Um, yeah. Other things, the movie itself. Um, so I loved the locations. I love the cinematography. I thought this was quite breathtaking. I loathed the soundtrack. I found uh, the whoever did Mikas Theodakis, who did the soundtrack to this, to be. Uh, I just I was wondering what the heck this was. It would seem like some some uh, soundtrack to a B roll to Fiddler on the Roof or some something going on. And this is uh, a film that didn't need a soundtrack. Yeah, you know, done more of the sort of cinema verite style and um had a more effective film i agree with you yeah and um what do you you think uh there's any anything that could have been uh taken taken out of this movie or anything that didn't work uh so well Uh so yeah i again the procedural i think we picked this because i was mixing um police procedural and um uh, bottle episode issues from the uh, um, high and low. So that was how we got here. And um, I love the police procedural stuff, sort of the, um, the you know, the evidence gathering, the the um, a rooting out of the corruption, et cetera. And I thought all of this stuff about his sort of personal life was almost worthless. I didn't need to see that. It didn't add much other than, well, maybe when he was young and he was, um, you know, uh, he was eager to uh, an eager young man on the force. Right. But I, I didn't really I don't think the stuff about his relationships, which seem very sort of superficial and um, not, you know, didn't didn't matter much to the plot of the movie. I don't think any of that was. Yeah. Uh, worthwhile. Yeah. It worked against the plot of the movie in some in some senses, uh, like the the first the first relationship he had with the ballet dancer uh, and that party. I found that scene to be. I don't know what he I don't know what uh, Lumet was trying to do with that scene, but it read like uh, something from a Godard movie that strangely was transposed or into this or uh, and I, I was just like why is this here i don't know that relationship with the ballet dancer served no function in this movie um yeah. like it didn't reveal anything about uh the character of serpico that could not have been revealed some other way or perhaps was revealed some other way. He was uncomfortable with being a cop. Well, I kind of got that from how he dressed, you know, like, and the fact that he, that the other cops at one point when he was working in fingerprints thought he was homosexual and he did nothing to really uh, 
disabuse them of that notion until, right. you know, like, so I get it. You don't like wearing uniforms. You're not comfortable with ins- with institutional authority. I don't need a party scene uh, yeah. for that. And then the second relationship he had, um, I don't see the only thing for that relationship is it established when he was and this is the last half of the movie, the last, maybe even the last third of the movie where he's talking with his friend in the mayor's office. And he's, he's rather abusive to his uh, common law partner who is, Mm -hmm. you know, and I'm like, okay, so if the aim of this movie is to show that Serpico is a martyr, um, why would you have this scene that at least to uh, 2023 eyes looks like he's just an abusive uh, male, you know, like uh, where he's taking it up, his job issues out on his wife or common law partner. I was like, and that, that uh, you know, why is this here? It seems right. against the movie. Uh, what it seems to do is show us further just how monomaniacally um, and mess- messianically he's pursuing this corruption to the to the detriment of the people around him you know um, and I again I think that could have been accomplished I mean and what is the point of that for us as a viewer other than to see him as some sort of um, you know laser focused martyr and I think you're right that's the that's he had too much of a role in uh, the script, I think. And, and, and I think he had an agenda to how, about how he wanted to be seen as cool, right? This cool kind of countercultural right. person uh, and also as a martyr. Yeah. Unless that was what, now here's just a thought, maybe like uh, that's what the director wanted to portray him utterly as a martyr. And maybe this was different on the script, but, Pacino's genius as an actor was to uh, destabilize that in the actual performance. And the reason I say this is because I'm thinking of some of Pacino's other great roles at the time. I'm thinking Godfather one and two. He is in like, like in Godfather one, he ends up being, uh, a hellish character at the end of the novel. Machiavellian uh, does not begin to describe the the depths of moral turpitude that he is descended to. Yet he is here specifically because he was motivated by the death of uh, his wife uh, in uh, Sicily. And he's like, okay, I'm going to set things right for my family. And, uh, and it was Pacino's genius to destabilize that and maybe there was some of that going on in Serpico, but I think it was, or maybe not. Or maybe I'm just yeah. making. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. it, I can't imagine somebody else playing this role. Um, and he does um, carve out for himself part of the persona that will follow him around uh, in Hollywood for quite some time. And and uh, you know, I think you're right. It was a it's a fantastic performance. The cinematography and the, um, uh, you know, the the um, uh, scenery uh, really make this a great 
enjoyable film to watch. Um, but yeah, I agree with you on the flaws. No soundtrack. Um, the party scene, exit out, a fewer bits of the relationships, and you've got a great film. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah. The, yeah. You got a perfect film then. I think. I think we just. I think we should like get together and like reshoot the whole thing. Uh, yeah, we can edit this. This we can do yeah, a fan yeah, cut. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. Um, so, um, well, uh, is it my turn to uh, pick our next um, viewings? It is. Um, lay it on me. All right. Uh, I'm going to go with. Um, the cinema verite aspects of Serpico and and also some of the critique of the institutions also, well, I guess of both movies. Um, and I suggest the battle of a, uh, two movies by the same director, the battle, oh, okay. of, the battle of Algiers okay. and burn which was made uh later i forget the director's name it just disappeared from my head but basically he was a director that made uh four movies in his career and uh one of which was really famously was about the holocaust i think it was it's a pontecorvo yes and um, yeah jillo i don't know how to pronounce it it's an italian name yeah, and uh, his uh, his first movie was uh, about the Holocaust, and it was critically panned famously by Jacques Rivette, uh, who, uh, like, just hated it. Uh, okay. <laughs> but uh, the Battle of Algiers and Burn, uh, well, particularly the Battle of Algiers is a masterpiece. Okay. And, um, Edward Said uh, thinks that they're both great. So uh, okay. that's, that's what I'm recommending for our next, or that's what I'd like to do for our next uh, meeting. Uh, it's twofer, uh, but and I've never seen him. And I see that Marlon Brando is in burn. So that's always a treat to watch Brando. Yeah. And it's a seventies Brando. So he hasn't completely jumped the shark. It's not like the, <laughs> the Island of Dr. Moreau uh, Brando. It's uh, it's more like a, the earlier earlier brand uh, had his apex not at his nadir uh, yeah so it's great. yeah all right david thank you rob and um uh we'd like to thank both of our listeners out there yes um, without your dedicated support uh we wouldn't have a reason to do this <laughs> uh, right we probably still do it and i have oh. to say also the this episode was cursed in numerous ways we oh, had yeah. an internet interruption uh, on our first uh, half of the program, um, and then we we did a. This is a second run of our uh, second part of it because something happened yesterday. That yeah, <laughs> yeah, and then and then like summer, right? Like our schedules yeah. been thrown into uh, flux. Uh, so it's been uh, it's been it's been a chore. But now I think now that summer is on, it's uh, <laughs> We're, it's on its way out. I think we should uh, be able to uh, hopefully uh, get these out at a bit of a, a bit more regularly. Uh, you will. And um, I always love doing these and I appreciate yeah, right. uh, uh, everybody listening. And thank you, Rob. Thank you, David. All right. And until next time.